What's up, gang? Thanks for listening to the Undiplomatic Podcast, the show with undiplomatic takes about the foreign policy scene. I'm your host, Van Jackson, and my co-host, Kate Kaiser, uh, should be here shortly. He's running a little late, I think. And we're doing a special episode today, kind of grading the Biden administration's foreign policy report card, uh, if you want to think of it like that. So we've got two guests uh, to talk things through. One, a longtime friend of the pod, Matt Duss, who was until very recently the foreign policy advisor to Senator Bernie Sanders, and he's now a visiting scholar at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace in D.C. And our other guest today, uh, who is also now officially a friend of the pod, Stephen Wertheim, senior fellow also at the Carnegie Endowment and a distinguished lecturer at Catholic University of America, where I did my Ph.D. Welcome to the show, friends. A very special episode. Uh, this week, like the one on family ties where Alex gets into drugs. Or... <laughs> Let's try to make it count. Let's do some learning. Hello, friends. And here we got Kate Kaiser. We just went on. All we did was the introduction. So we're we're good to go with the substance now. You've missed nothing. We determined that it is a very special episode, though. So we yes. have to live up to that. True. So... Matt and Stephen are co-authors of a great new piece in The New Republic called The Better Biden Doctrine. And the piece is basically doing this uh, progress report check-in with where Biden's foreign policy is at two years into his presidency, kind of compared to what the foreign policy platform was during the campaign. Uh, so we thought we'd get them on the mic to like work through all these issues. So guys, I mean, what's the top line judgment here about Biden's foreign policy? And like, what, what was your take in the New Republic overall? Well, I think our, our main take was, you know, there are certain areas where they've done well. I think Ukraine was a place where we identified that all things considered, they've been handling it um, uh, pretty adeptly, managing, you know, the, the U.S.-Europe alliance um, and internationally, um, acting, you know, not with the goal, obviously, of not getting drawn into a larger war. Uh, not getting into a U.S.-Russia war, a uh, NATO-Russia war, and obviously avoiding, um, you know, any escalation toward uh, a nuclear war. Um, you know, I'll let, I'll let Stephen go into some of the other upsides, but in the short version is that, you know, some areas of, of positive. I think the, the move away from neoliberalism, you know, at least at the rhetorical level and, and some at the substantive level is, is a big deal. Um, shifting away from from decades of a kind of uh, uh, this kind of economic uh, consensus in Washington, um, you know, and to hear, you know, a U.S. president give the speech that Biden gave, I think it was last April in his first speech to uh, both houses of Congress, uh, when he more or less declared, you know, the, the Washington consensus um, is over. Uh, that really does matter. Um, but I think one of the things we get at in the piece is saying these things is is important, but actually getting your back into this policy change for the long term is, is much more difficult. Um, and I'll just finish off by si saying that, you know, primacy is a hell of a drug um, and it's it's it's, it's tough to, to move off of it. Yeah, and I think despite all the the positive elements that Matt has pointed to, we conclude the piece by warning that there's still a quite decent chance that Biden could hand his successor, whoever that is, a U.S. foreign policy that's that's worse than what he received mm -hmm. from Donald Trump. Yeah. Um, and that's not all his fault or maybe even mainly his fault. Um, a lot of that has to do with the way in which uh, Russia and China have aligned more closely and obviously with Russia's uh, aggression against Ukraine. But. Um, but it also, his job is to actually fix these problems. 
Yeah, I have a hard time. I mean, we'll work through each of the issues here, I guess, but I have a hard time grading or evaluating both individual issues and a kind of short-term snapshot because like most of this stuff is only going to matter in the long term or like it only matters at you know time three or time four not time zero it does concern me a lot what we are setting up the next president to have um which is actually like one of the reasons I became anti-primacist in the first place. Cause like, do you want another Trump like person having this kind of machinery? Mm -hmm. Like, I don't, I don't know, man. Right. I mean, apparently the answer is yes, that the Biden administration is, <laughs> is giving say, us, right? Every yeah. time the answer is yes. Yeah. Right? <laughs> no, but I think, too. I think it's also like everyone, I mean, you know, everyone here, all four of us have, have, have played a role, I think over the past few years in putting, some really important issues on the agenda and kind of working in a broader kind of context of this political foreign policy movement, which I think has done a really good job in various ways of, you know, broadening and shifting the conversation to focus on some key things like ending forever wars, um, obviously the focus on Yemen, um, Kate has done enormous work on that, um, you know, and there, and we did good work um, during the campaign, both, you know, the with, with Senator Sanders, but also with Senator Warren and, and others to, to help write, um, if not a super progressive platform on foreign policy, a much more progressive one than we'd seen previously. And I, I think that's important. So I think the kind of, um, you know, the, the, the approach of the piece, again, was to say, okay, we, this, these, these commitments were made and, and how is that going? Yeah, that's right. Like we're not trying to judge Biden by our, ideal standard of what we want America's role in the world to be. He's going to fall way short of that after two point. years, yeah. for sure. But we did try to, you know, establish a benchmark that he himself uh, essentially endorsed uh, by being the nominee. So we try to refer to that 2020 platform again and again. And I think, you know, within the administration, there are people who probably support uh, at least elements of all the different elements of our of our article. Uh, and so I think if you think about um, how the administration has ended up right now, it's pretty disappointing um, to me, at least, considering where the administration seemed to want to go in the opening months mm -hmm. and then maybe even after the opening year. That's what I was going to say. It's I think it's fair to grade them as if like they're attempting to transition things, right? Which I think the first year, especially so much of the rhetoric was very progressive. And I think it set up the expectation that there was going to be some bold decision making, right? Um, and in my view, this transition period is what really needs to happen is the challenge to the various institutional powers as it exists, right? Especially within the executive branch, whether that's just, in, you know, flipping the interagency process. So like state is actually in charge of all conflict management, not DOD. It's a revolutionary idea, I know. Um, but that's where I feel like it's, it's like good, but also in some ways using that rhetoric, but then continuing many of the same policies, continuing many of Trump's policies, it almost yeah. does more damage to the project because I think, you know, across progressive politics, we've seen kind of this like capture by people in power of the issues or talking points that really resonate with people 
But then the public voters become, you know, disillusioned when then the policy doesn't actually follow the rhetoric. And so, I don't know, to me, it's there's like a real risk here that we're just getting some window dressing on just more primacy. Yeah, I mean, I think that the point you just made, Kate, I mean, especially with regard to, um, well, first of all, let's talk about, you know, ending the forever wars, right? I mean, yes, the decision in Afghanistan is as wrenching as it was, was I think the right one. It was a, a, a courageous one. Um, but that's not the forever war. I mean, it's a much broader, as, as you all know, a much broader set of conflicts and policies and approaches. And and one of the points we make, which I, I think was an important one, is like, yes, it is it is great that, you know, they have been, um, you know, th that there's fewer drone strikes, for example, but the authorities under which those drone strikes um, are carried out continue. I mean, that they have, they're not changing the basic framework um, that could enable a future president, Trump or someone worse, to, con you know, just ramp them right back up again. Um, because in part, they're not, they're doing this quietly um, for understandable reasons. They want to avoid putting up a target. They want to avoid having to, you know, get, getting drawn into, um, you know, big arguments um, about these policies. But the, the downside is that you are not changing the consensus if you're doing this all just quietly behind the scenes. That was a great point in the piece, too. Like, how are you going to shift the political terrain if you're doing shit stealthily in the background? Yeah. Um, okay, so you, so Afghanistan withdrawal, good. Um, the Largely the ending of the drone wars seems to be good, but also possibly a function of having withdrawn from Afghanistan. Because, I mean, like, part of our position in Afghanistan was the ability to prosecute those strikes. So you pull that out and you end up constraining your ability to do drone wars, but the authorization to use military force still there, right? Still right. still the global war on terror, even though you can yeah. claim you pulled out of Afghanistan. But Van, it doesn't matter because as Biden said, after the withdrawal from Afghanistan, he, he comes before the world as the leader of a nation no longer at war. And he said this twice, I think. That's the fucking, I mean, there's yeah. a, just an example of actually positively participating in public ignorance mm. uh, that allows forever wars to continue. Yes, it was the it was the pandemic is over of foreign policy announcements. <laughs> <laughs> well, I also right. think like part of the challenge here is that for a lot of the first year, they put like drone strikes, for example, on pause because they were doing a policy review. Oh, and so we saw a natural like tick down in the amount. And now that they've issued Biden's, what we wonks call his version of the PPG, the like presidential guidance. I can't even remember the acronym. It's been a, been a long week for a, what, are, what day are we on? Tuesday? <laughs> um, but, you know, once that new policy was released, which in theory is meant to uh, limit civilian casualties in these operations, increase accountability in terms of the chain of command and decision making. Um, it's well and good, but it it has now drone strikes in certain cases have gone back up, like in Somalia, where, you know, Trump, uh, Trump withdrew troops, Biden then redeployed them. And now we're seemingly somewhat acting as the Air Force yeah. to the Somali government. Um, and, you know, it's not, I'm not 
like, I don't believe that being anti-war means being a pacifist, but I also think, you know, it's, it's indicative to me that so many inside don't seem to have actually taken the time to understand the real like societal impacts of these policies, not only from a military perspective, but how it also shapes public perceptions of the use of military force, who is actually bombing civilians, right? Like there's, there's this entire PR aspect to this that just continues to not be addressed. And this kind of secret shift, if you will, you know, of, you know, leaving behind more boots on the ground interventions like Afghanistan and moving towards exporting these endless wars to partner forces Mm -hmm. with no transparency, with, you know, with the raid in 2018 in Niger, Tim Kaine uncovered that there, you know, to be uh, protected under the theory of collective self-defense by the military, if you're a partner force, the department just has to deem them a partner force. There's no list, Hmm. there's no criteria, right? There's no real oversight of these things. And so it's, to me, it's like more war with less US fingerprints, Hmm. which is almost worse. Hmm. There's no like theory of how do you make the situation better or a theory of peace even. Like it's inertia that can only be described as militarist, The the infrastructure of primacy firmly in place but then the rhetoric around the, the issues has shifted and then certain policy, discrete policy issues have shifted in ways that are like commendable or that signal the right direction. Mm-hmm. That I mean, is it almost like it, it's a whole, the whole foreign policy agenda is like a, a Rorschach test. Like people just see what they want to see in this. Is it like, am I off there? I mean, I think, um, I mean, I would say I, I'm, I'm willing to, for, for years, I, I kind of felt like, please co-opt people like me, end the war in Afghanistan, and then give me the much harder task of trying to say that we need a lot more scrutiny uh, of, um, you know, quote unquote, lower intensity conflicts. And mm. so there we go. So I still think, you know, this is, uh, I, would, I, would, I, I would take where we are now relative to where mm. the Biden uh, team came in uh, on the global war on terror, quote unquote. But- to your point, Van, I, I just lack a sense of what is the basic strategic objective at this point um, with U.S. counterterrorism operations. Um, are we trying to go after terrorist groups that uh, have global reach or are plotting to attack the United States? What is the basic standard that the U.S. government is using to identify uh, our, our adversaries? Um there's a lack of, I, I think it's a hodgepodge, uh, is, the, is, the, is the truth. And there certainly isn't a publicly articulated, you know, basic standard. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, 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 and as we note, I mean, there was an effort that I was a part of, and I think Kate was a part of on, on you know, in Congress to create a new standard. That was the, the National Security Reform Act um, that Senator Sanders and Senator Lee and Senator Murphy introduced um, well over a year now that dealt with the authorizations for use of military force, emergency powers as relating to sanctions. What happened in a that? Number of, it, it, it did not go forward. Um, you know, and again, this was a very big bill. Um, but, you know, given that the administration and, 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 and President Biden himself had at least, you know, indicated some support for, for these ideas, 
um, on the trail. I mean, part of the idea was to put this big package of ideas and, and reform legislation. Um, you know, one of the things it does is essentially, you know, rewrite the war powers resolution uh, to tighten up the definitions um, much you know, to make it much, much clearer what we were talking about when, when we talk about hostilities and things like that. Um, and it's very possible, and I, and I very much hope sometime in the future, you can kind of use this thing for parts. You don't have to pass the whole thing. You can take small pieces of it, because I think all these pieces are important. Yeah. Um, but, you know, again, there was just not much interest at all um, from the administration. And again, they've got a lot to deal with. But I mean, I know as, as we complete, you know, we repeatedly return to based on the commitments and things that they had said themselves, I think it's it's right to, to try and hold them to some of this. Yeah, that's fair. Um, so what about what about Ukraine? You said at the top that, you know, they've basically handled it well. Anything to elaborate on that or caveats or anything? I mean, you know, this is an interesting one. Obviously, there's a very uh, animated and I think really important discussion on the progressive left about the, the approach to Ukraine. Mm. And as I, you know, remarked in a piece in foreign policy that came out yesterday about the new kind of progressives in Congress and what that might mean for foreign policy, I think a lot of progressives, myself included, even those who support what we've been doing in Ukraine, um, there's real and legitimate concern about the way Ukraine is, you know, being used to sort of reinvigorate an outdated interventionist ideology. Um, for the benefit of, you know, defense contractors and lobbyists and all the, the usual folks. Um, so trying to find a balance between, you know, you know, supporting Ukraine's defense, but not letting that simply, you know, you know, revive the monster or, or rebuild the, the, the monster um, is, is a challenge. Now, I think some of the concern from some um, on the left um, and some on the right has been, okay, is this just going to be an open-ended conflict? Do we just keep pouring money into Ukraine and it just goes on and on and on? And that's, I think, a valid, valid question. Um, I'm not one of those, and I don't think I don't think anyone should kind of respond to these kinds of questions and concerns with the usual, oh, why do you support Russia bullshit? Um, um, but I think that, you know, the administration, is, at least as far as I've seen, even if they're kind of their diplomacy is not at a level that I think some would want. I think it's pretty clear that they have been keeping these feelers out uh, for the moment when when Putin shows that he's actually serious about trying to end this conflict in a durable way. And, and that moment has has not yet come. Um, I know some 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 here may disagree and I'd love to hear it, but that's kind of my my take on, on how things are going. Stephen. Yeah, I, I have a similar view. Um, I am concerned about where the war goes from here. Um, we've kind of caught ourselves in a trap where anything but total victory by Ukraine will seem like a loss. Yeah. Um, but total victory by Ukraine would be uh, potentially extremely escalatory and is therefore not in the interests of the United States, if, especially if we're talking about Crimea. Um, I think the administration perhaps missed an opportunity to say earlier on that Crimea was not an issue in this war as far as like what the United States would provide active military support for. Hmm. Um, I would be much more comfortable if there was clarity on that point. 
I can see why there's an advantage to Ukraine potentially being able to threaten Crimea, even if it doesn't actually seek to retake it. Right. Mm -hmm. So um, I can I can see the counter argument, but um, the escalation risks are really, really serious. Uh, And I think Matt is absolutely right that, you know, Democrats should um, should welcome scrutiny of, you know, where our arms are going, of what the strategy is, et cetera. And you know, potentially join in uh, legitimate scrutiny um, where that's raised by by the new Congress. The other thing I just want to say, and it was an element of our piece, it, it's not so much about the administration's policy toward the war in Ukraine itself, but we may never get a safer moment to effectuate a transition from U.S. to European leadership of European security affairs. Yes. The, the Russian military is, you know, bogged down in Ukraine, struggling to achieve its objective there. Uh, it's going to be weakened for some time to come. Uh, we don't know exactly how long, but you know, this is a moment where, for the United States to be signaling to its European allies, actually, like, okay, we'll take the lead in this emergency situation in this case, but we can't keep doing this. Uh, and you know, Europe needs to step up. That's what the turning point, the European awakening, uh, actually means. Uh, this is probably the best time we're going to get to, to do that. But I think on balance, the Biden administration has done just the opposite. Um, we actually see, you know, us, um, dominance of European affairs increasing, so far in this war, NATO has expanded, and that adds, as a U.S. defense responsibility, uh, uh, the 830-mile Finnish border with Russia, which won't be a problem, I don't think, in the near term, but we have to think long term. Uh, and, um, you know, I think the general message from Washington has been one of reassurance of the European allies, uh, reassurance of the U.S. commitment. And that's been symbolized by, you know, tens of thousands of more U.S. troops uh, in in Eastern Europe. So that's my longer term concern. You know, I think there were some people in the administration early on who had wanted to do something like that long talked about pivot to Asia. And in this case, that meant pivoting away from the Middle East and Europe in terms of security affairs. Mm -hmm. And we're very much not seeing that. Yeah, my... uh... I'm not anti-NATO or anything. Like I've been pretty like vocally in support of NATO in the past, but that's not the future. I mean, NATO is not supposed to be a permanent architecture. It's not supposed to be like it reflects a unique historical conjuncture where there was like a unique, extreme amount of power concentrated in one state, and that state yoked itself to the others in Europe, and that's what that. That's what NATO as an institution reflects. And it's like, this is your fucking come to Jesus moment, guys. Like European defense force time. Or if you got to have just national militaries, but like take yourselves seriously for in terms of security, this is it. You know, like how can you look at the last four years before Biden and be like, oh, that's our future. I mean, like, what the fuck? Um, so, yeah, that it's it's not so much that like you know, in including Finland and NATO is going to destroy everything. It's that NATO is not the right architecture for the future. That's not, that's doubling down on the past. 
in, in my mind. And so it's like we should be talking about kind of off ramps or how, how we get to a better place. Well, it's also it like related to that. It It's like this perception of security that, again, is or like Europe's defense. Again, it's only military, whereas mm. Russia in particular, often makes inroads into countries via the information space, right? Via like they they take it's very similar to kind of how Iranian proxies operate in the Middle East, where they look for areas of state failure and then they pull on them, right? Mm. Um, and it can have the impact of you know creating polarization. But I think this this NATO is like a intermediary structure, right? Where there it becomes like a democracy organization sometimes, then it's a military alliance. And I would, to me, it's like, if we're going to start with NATO, because that's what we have, can we at least like, you know, how they have, each country has to spend 2% of uh, its annual budget on the military, right? Mm-hmm. Um, why don't we have that for social programs? in those countries who are part of that, actually, if we want to build democratic resilience, which in theory is like our best defense against rising fascism around the world and people who are willing to use their power to maintain supremacy in certain cases, you know, if we don't actually begin to question like what makes us safe and the fact that all of this militarization over, you know, since the end of the Cold War, we'll we'll just start there. It, time and again has created more conflict. It has not necessarily de-escalated things. I think people are often, they lean back on this like, well, the world is safer than it's ever been. People have more access to information. There's less poverty. These are all wonderful outcomes. But at the same time, right, power has become much more uh, concentrated amongst a certain subset of people, I think, than, and a lot, than a lot of times in history. And that to me is what's so dangerous because it's so interlinked with the mass inequality that we have globally, economically as well. One of the things I really like about Kate was is that like she doesn't let you take your eye off of like how might we get to like deeper forms of security. Okay. Also, I have a question for Stephen about what you said about the escalatory factor of retaking Crimea. And I'm very interested in your response because. I've read like Timothy Snyder's writing about this, especially since the mobilization, right? And now if Putin were to use nuclear weapons, whether in Crimea on a front line, right, he would also then be nuking Russian soldiers who he would then, in theory, right, domestically be held accountable for. And um, and so I'm wondering, right, because he is managing such a complex political calculus, and has kind of boxed him himself in in certain ways, whether at this point it actually is escalatory or, you know, I've been doing um, engagement at the UN recently, and it's been very interesting to talk to countries in the global south who I think um, would be very amenable to your argument that the Biden administration should actually be, you know, focusing its coalition building on the principle of protecting sovereignty, right? That that's kind of a universal norm that everyone can get behind. Even China has been very vocal as it has been um, with regard to Putin's war and sovereignty. And a lot of the points that they make is that that one, nuclear use is really a red line for them and them 
be kind of being on the fence, not necessarily saying anything, abstaining from votes, et cetera, et cetera. And so anyway, I just wanted your take on this because I, I, I you know, I agree, like when the, the progressive letter was drafted in April, for example, last year, that was absolutely a very risky moment of possible escalation. Um, but, but as these dynamics change and the politics change, like how does that play into the potential of nuclear use? Because I've also heard some people who are like, well, once he uses a nuke, it's over. So he's not gonna use a nuke. Yeah. I, I, I feel uncomfortable trusting that, right? That, and that's the problem of deterrence. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. What do you think? You know, I think that, first of all, like our debate about um, nuclear escalation risks has waxed and waned in the war much more than probably the actual risk level. The actual risk level, um, I think, has been kind of persistent and fairly constant. But note that we have not seen a Ukrainian attempt to retake Crimea, right? Which to be clear, like, you know, under international law, uh, Ukraine is perfectly entitled to uh, to mount that offensive, right? It's, it's Ukraine's territory. But that's different from the United States, uh, you know, actively supporting such an effort uh, with with weapons and intelligence and so forth. You know, I think the issue here is just that um, that his regime is threatened would be something that uh, potentially could cause him to use nuclear weapons either in a demonstration or in uh, an actual attack. And that could happen, you know, uh, absent uh, Crimea coming into play. That could happen due to domestic developments. But that would be a, you know, a hairy situation. And I think Crimea is different from from elsewhere um, in Ukraine uh, because it has been it really incorporated into uh, the Russian Federation since 2014, illegally, of course. Um, and Putin has staked a great deal of credibility. And for him to be facing a situation where he's not only failed to take territory or achieve any goals uh, in Ukraine as a result of the war he launched in February 2022. But he's also now being rolled back further. You know, there we see somebody who was already uh, proven to be willing to take risks um, with his backup against the wall and an arsenal of 5,000 nuclear weapons, including tactical nuclear weapons. So, you know, it's a level of risk I am sure, you know, sure not comfortable with. The other thing is, in terms of the global reaction, um, it might be the case that a lot of the world would uh, condemn Russia um, if it was a one and done situation. Hmm. But my sense is that the U.S. would likely mount uh, a kinetic response. Um, and then we're off to the races. Um, you know, how is Russia going to view that? Uh, it would probably be a fairly limited attempt to attack maybe the Russian forces that um, helped to prepare the attack. But from Russia's point of view, this is the United States, which is supposed to not be a belligerent in this war, directly attacking Russian forces. So that in turn, if we just even just stop 
time at that point, right? Because we don't know what happens next up the escalatory ladder. Um, I think that a lot of countries will, yes, they won't be pleased that Russia used nuclear weapons to begin with, but they might also, if they've been both sidesing the conflict to begin with, they can both sides the the uh, the Russian attack and then the U.S. counterattack. And their concern would be de-escalation above all rather than condemnation of Russia. Yeah, I mean, like I've, I've been pretty um, positive on Ukraine, kind of like Matt has described or judged overall. I, the two like little critiques, which maybe aren't little, but they're in the scheme of things. One is that like, I don't know that we've taken the nuclear risks seriously enough. I mean, we were sending nuclear capable bombers to Europe deliberately to signal to Putin. And it's like, what the fuck? Like you're increasing crisis instability risks for no gain for no like positive outcome. The idea that like, that's going to change his calculus is seems laughable. So it's not, there was no upside to it in my mind. So it's like taking the nuclear risks more seriously, like has got to be in the picture. And then the other one is like the, you know, I, I'm all for soaking oligarchs and like seizing oligarch yachts and stuff. The pre-conviction asset seizure legislation mm -hmm. authority right. is a problem. Like that's going right. to blow back on us at some point, us being yeah. like people browner than me, you know, that's, mm -hmm. that's a bad precedent, but otherwise, yeah. Yeah. Agreed. There's this big issue that I had in my notes called Middle East policy, but like <laughs> there's like 17 items within that. Um, and you guys are like much better positions to talk through this than me, like Kate, Matt, Stephen, how do you break that down? Um, it, it's easy. Um, they made some, I think it was important and, and and commendable that they named a special envoy for Yemen, Tim Lenderking. I think the the ceasefire and the extended ceasefire, but the ongoing talks, the, the kind of diplomatic energy um, they've put into this is important. Um, they, you know, came out early on with the president announcing an end to quote unquote offensive support Continuing defensive support, uh, we, we pushed them for months to try and clarify what that actually what means. That, yeah, what is defense? Um, and as of today, have yet to receive a really <laughs> good explanation. Um, but all that to say, they have diminished the amount of support they are giving to the Saudis for the war in Yemen. Um, are they following the letter of the War Powers Resolution that Joe Biden supported as a candidate? No, they are not. You know, but still, I think we give them some credit in the piece um, for the work that they've done. Beyond that, uh, there's not a lot that I can say that's that's good in the Middle East. I mean, they they straight up broke their promise to rejoin the Iran deal. Um, I think we may very well lose it. I think that's that's an enormous negative. Um, and that's driving know, us closer to Saudi Arabia, yeah. I mean, or it is no, I, and, and again, they'll, they'll justify this. They'll justify this through by pointing to Ukraine, right? But the, the truth is the policy was trending this way before the Russian invasion uh, happened. Um, and I'll just put it very bluntly. Joe Biden has framed up a conflict between democracy and authoritarianism in the Middle East. His administration is squarely on the side of the latter. Damn. Other There's than that, sound, though, sound <laughs> high marks. Yeah. Jeez. I feel like the Middle East is truly where like the rhetoric not matching reality is just so stark. Uh, like the Yemen case yeah. is very, very good example where they came in saying all of the right things, right? Mm -hmm. His advisors had signed letters 
opposing the support, doing a mea culpa, although it was only a partial mea culpa, if I may. Um, and I think he, again, it's like kind of got our expectations high <laughs> for what they might be willing to do. And while appointing Tim Lunderking um, special envoy was very, very important, and Tim has actually done a ton of work, has worked hand in foot with um, the UN special envoy to try to not only extend the ceasefires, but get larger negotiations popped off. Um, and I think we've seen some effect of, of that diplomacy over the summer when after the last ceasefire, or I guess it was this fall, expired, the Saudis still have not resumed airstrikes in Yemen. Um, and negotiations are largely between the Houthis and the ostensible Yemeni government as it exists in this new presidential council, which I could go on about, about <laughs> the challenges of that and how it threatens to recreate, um, you know, previous corruption flows and patronage that really were the precursors to Yemen's revolution in 2011, which is where this conflict comes out of. But the the challenge is that when they appointed Mr. Lender King, right, he was given a mandate over negotiations and trying to shore up the humanitarian situation. He was not necessarily given power to influence the entire agenda when it comes to Yemen. And because Saudi Arabia has seen Yemen as kind of its like little brother for decades, right? And believes that it has like the right to somewhat dictate what goes on within Yemen or have access to various ports and borders and things like that. Um, the there has not been a larger rethinking of the relationship that got us to where we are now in the conflict in Yemen. And that would have actually looked like, you know, banning air to ground munitions writ large versus one type of bomb that can be dropped from one type of fixed air, fixed wing aircraft, right? Like a tiny subsection of, of the 35 billion that we identified in pending sales to Saudi and the UAE when they first came into office in 2021, that could be canceled potentially. So, and and again, you see that's kind of on the Khashoggi murder too, where Biden said, I'm going to make him a pariah, right? About MBS, the crown prince in Saudi Arabia. And while, you know, what always gets trotted out as the evidence of the change is that, you know, they the Saudi government now gets the cold shoulder from staff in the administration. I'm like, okay, that's a good step, right, of re-tilting re the relationship. But, you know, Matt has talked about this a lot, where we've created this dynamic of a client state where the client state is basically holding all the cards, or that's our government's perception of it, right? And what that, you know, there's th this one academic study where they looked at aid to Gulf country, military aid to Gulf countries and whether or not that impacted um, uh, the political decisions of those governments in line with the donor countries' foreign policy priorities. And what they found is that increased military aid actually decreases recipient country cooperation. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, I think our relationship with Saudi Arabia and arms sales issues with regard to Yemen has kind of been a picture perfect example of that. Right. And yeah. so, you know, this is where it's like, can, can we pull back and rethink actually what we're trying to do? Yeah. Is it, is it just to like placate Saudi Arabia, help them save face, get them out of the war? Are we actually 
trying to create sustainable peace in Yemen, because that is a much broader, larger project that requires rebalancing the alliance with Saudi Arabia. But it also requires like deep investment in people in Yemen, which, you know, I've heard that some in the administration are trying to cut humanitarian and peacebuilding assistance for Yemen in the next budget proposal, right? And so it's it's this kind of like misplaced priorities, I think. And we, we've seen this in so many of these conflicts. So long as you like don't actually address the root causes, they're going to come back. Violence mm-hmm. is cyclical until you interrupt the yeah. things that are pre- the precursors there. Yeah, and I'll just I'll just offer us a, a segue um, out of the Middle East and 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 to China and Asia here by saying I think, you know, their approach as with with few exceptions in the Middle East is basically Trump with better manners, right? And they yeah. and what and the way they justify this is through the lens of great power competition, um, whether it's Russian influence or Chinese influence, and you know that is a loophole you can drive any human rights abuse right through. Yeah. Yeah, um, that is something that can justify and it because we've seen it that has been US policy with this region for the past 50 years, which is well, yes, they're a bad regime and corrupt and they imprison their own people. But um, there's all these other security priorities that we have. And so and so it goes on. Um, but I think this brings us to, you know, not just Russia, but also China, even even more so, because um, that is their main focus. Yeah, I was going to say the Saudi thing is of a pattern because like, most of our allies have us by the balls. Um, this this is how it this is it's it bothers me more and more over time. But as long as we have this like primacist posture toward the world, they allies have a lot of leverage with us in a practical agenda setting kind of sense. This is is as stark in Asia with China as it is in the Middle East with Saudi Arabia. So, like, what's the what, what's your guys' take on on China or China policy? I should say. To be honest, um, this is an area where I think Biden may have made his most consequential mistake. I mean, I think some Asia policy has been positive, um, and especially if you compare it to the Trump administration. But just particularly over Taiwan, um, I am very concerned about where we're going. And you just can't have uh, the White House uh, walk back four time gaffes, quote unquote, by the president and pretend like it didn't actually happen. Um, and so I'm you know, quite concerned. I'm obviously referring to these statements that Biden has made saying, that the U.S. has a commitment to defend Taiwan. Yeah. It doesn't that anyway, he would defend Taiwan by sending U.S. troops there. Uh, and also several times he said Taiwan uh, independence is up to the Taiwanese, um, which isn't correct under the one China policy that the administration is otherwise saying that it's maintaining. And so I fear that we're getting to a place. It's not that I'm overly concerned uh, about, you know, China invading Taiwan, you know, this year or next year. Um, but we're getting to the place where um, it looks more and more like the one China policy lives on borrowed time. Uh, and it seems as though the United States is or it could plausibly be argued, particularly in Beijing, that the United States uh, sees Taiwan as 
a strategic asset that has to be kept permanently separate from mainland China. And so we are dancing right up to uh, a well-known red line that we know that Beijing has. We just don't know exactly where it will decide uh, that that line has been been crossed. Uh, and, you know, you see U.S. allies and partners in the region very much respond to these to these developments, uh, particularly striking in in Japan, uh, which is now uh, pledged to double uh, its its defense spending um, and develop strike capabilities against uh, China as well as uh, North Korea. So I really worry about relations with China as being potentially the most consequential um, negative development that we've seen from from the Biden administration, as as bad as Middle East policy has been. Matt. Well, it's worse because it has climate implications. I mean, yeah. that's what I'm so worried about is that we're closing off pathways that we need to actually not have an unlivable world. Yeah, there's that. Uh, and, you know, the administration has, has, <laughs> has dealt yeah. with that in a really interesting way by saying, yes, I hear you, Kate. And we insist that challenges i'm now paraphrasing the national security strategy right we we recognize that challenges like like climate change and pandemics are as important as traditionally defined security challenges we <laughs> see yet, you we hear you yes yada, yada, it's a yada. threat yeah <laughs> we're not doing anything <laughs> <laughs> i mean that's not fair i mean the our investments are really important on climate but i yeah mm. yeah i mean so like i i think they've done a reasonably good job on crisis managing sino-us relations right so like a minus i don't know um but then mm -hmm. it's like a, a fucking d f what, what's the lowest grade you can give on like the long-term trajectory this is where by like the area where biden is Trump plus. And it wasn't long ago that having any family resemblance to anything Trump was obviously bad, evil, dangerous, corrupt, whatever. And we're not just resembling, we're outbidding Trump, you know, yeah. like Biden is conducting Steve Bannon's dream China policy. Like I w I've, I've been having to go back and look at all the things that Steve Bannon wanted yeah. to achieve. And it's, it's his fantasy china policy and like that should give us pause but it's not you know right. we're doing containment now partially like we're and this is what we're going to hand off to the next guy i don't know it's a fucking disaster yeah no no i i i i hear that i mean i think part of it is i mean i think they rightly and this goes into this stuff you know partly the work that jake sullivan was involved here at carnegie around foreign policy for the middle class mm. which i think you know represents an important recognition that came out of the 2016 election, which is that huge numbers of Americans are completely, you know, they have no connection to the foreign policy so-called consensus as it's been carried out in Washington. It does not speak to their lived reality. And that is a problem. Um, and so their entire focus, and, and, and Jake was here at Carnegie at, at the beginning of December for a conversation with Carnegie's president, uh, Tina Cuellar, and I thought it was very interesting because it was a foreign policy check-in, but it was almost entirely about trade. Um, and I think that speaks to their focus. It's like, you know, foreign policy has to deliver uh, and be seen as delivering for American communities. And I think that is a sound theory of the case. But I think to take this 
to the point where they have been, which is wrapping all of these investments in American infrastructure and Americans' health and their communities around, this is how we compete with China. I think that is going to have enormously negative consequences. I mean, we should be able to justify investing in American communities because that is what a government does. That's what a responsible, how a responsible government behaves, um, you know, toward its people. Uh, and yet. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's politically popular. Yeah. All of the policies that they're trying to pass, right? It's like, we don't, we don't need right. to fear monger about China and right. to drive more. To get the hawks on board, they need to kind of dangle this stuff. And I think we always see this, if you kind of reinforce, and I'm, I'm telling everyone in this call what they already know, but to reinforce this kind of framing is, is, you know, gets us in a bidding war, which the right will always win. Yep. It's I the, do wonder, go ahead. sorry. Yeah. Just a, as the new Congress comes in, um, the Republicans are going to set up this select committee on China, um, led by a guy who openly says he wants a Cold War with China in mm -hmm. those terms. Um, I do wonder whether the uh, proliferation of Republican pontification on China now might cause some Democrats to stand up and say, hmm, that's actually not what I agree with and create some space in reaction to some of the more extreme uh, GOP statements. Maybe I'm just too much the optimist, but I'd like to see that happen. Well, I hate to break it to you, Steve. <laughs> oh, I am. Right. Menendez might have some things to uh, say. No, no, I, 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 think, I think I will just say, I think there's a lot of great work being done to make that happen, to, to, to pressure and support and encourage and, and, you know, to build a movement that can that can support the congressional champions who will do exactly the pushback that you're talking about. And that's something we've not had uh, in, in, in years past. So, yeah, it's not going to start with Bob Menendez, but I think maybe it will start. I think it can. I just say for all of the listeners out there, last go round when Congress was trying to pass the CHIPS bill and they attached it to the um, Strategic Competition Act in the Senate, right? Democrats largely thought that the hawkish China policies that were being put forth by Republicans and then accepted in order to get votes to pass these bills, that it was just and its role in driving racism against Asian Americans, anyone who looks Asian, right, in the United States driving racism against them and violence for that matter, a lot of the perceptions on the hills from members was that it was just a messaging problem. If we just insert some language saying we oppose anti-Asian racism and hate violence, then it's fine. And I just want to emphasize that's not how things work <laughs> because ultimately, right? Like we are, we are othering the Chinese government people in China that only Americans can only succeed if China loses. That's a zero sum game that ultimately, right, is going to drive people to extremes. And so this is where it's about like, what is the actual strategic end with China, mm -hmm. right? It's good to not want a war, but what, what are the positive goals? How do we actually Bring, do we want to bring them further into the international community? Do we want to actually try to work with them on managing the rules of the road since we also break them all of the time? I mean, I'm not equating the U.S. government to what 
China is doing systematically in terms of its human rights abuses. But at the same time, there are segments of the population in the United States who might actually say, well, look at what we're doing here, right, against Black Americans and the police. And so I think there's a there's like a level of humility, I think, in this conversation about U.S. policy towards China, what's possible, what's actually in our interest that just isn't really there. And there's this kind of like rush to determine and define what the rise of China actually means. And I, I still don't think we know ultimately what it means for the world. Right. And presupposing that we do feels a lot like where we were in like 2001, 2002 right, with the war on terror. We've just seen this. I mean, yeah, like I was actually going to make some of those points. So you saved me time. But the, we've seen this Cold War play out before where we think we're forging the, this like bipartisan consensus against an external foe. And then the other side in that consensus decides to say, oh, well, yeah, we still agree about the threat thing, but because the threat is so large, we can't do these public goods things anymore. We can't do this, you know, having sane labor relations and like not repressing labor and we can't we can't invest in national infrastructure anymore. Right. We can't afford the welfare state. Right. Because we got to deal with the big bad. And so, like, that is a proposition that we know the Republicans are going to take and then use it to austeritize this whole mm. nation that we think we're building, right? The public goods wager that Democrats are making on the back of the China threat is a bad wager. We have historical evidence of this. It just doesn't make sense. And, like, you see people like Joe Manchin, you see people like fucking Tom Cotton, they're making it very clear They've already the reason we didn't fund climate as well as we should have was because we needed to send money to fucking DARPA, you know, like we needed more money for fucking missiles. So, like, we probably need to move on. But <laughs> this is this whole like China threat paradigm is not winning one for Democrats, in addition to the sort of like dangers and negative feedback that it generates, mm -hmm. you know. Can we talk just quickly about like defense? Nukes, where, where are you guys on this? Defense strategy, spending? I mean, I think I know where you are, but... Steven. <laughs> I mean, uh, <laughs> I think a lot of people don't recognize that the U.S. is going to be spending uh, a whole lot more on defense in the years to come unless we can take actions that uh, reduce uh, the uh, objectives we've set out for, for ourselves. Uh, this has been a really consequential year, or so it seems at this point, uh, in which Russia and China have come closer into alignment. That's been tested by the war in Ukraine. Uh, and I think the bond has been strengthened. Um, I don't want to overstate that bond, but it's, it's there. Um, this is a very negative development, to put it mildly, if there's, you know, one basic U.S. strategic objective that it should have towards Eurasia. It's to prevent the emergence of a rival or alliance of rivals uh, that could potentially dominate uh, that area. So this is kind of like the opposite of what uh, primacy on its own terms would be trying to trying to achieve. And as we've discussed, you know, the United States is doing uh, very little to uh, 
um, draw down over the longer term in the Middle East or in Europe or in Asia uh, and China continues to rise. So we've got a huge math problem. It's already being reflected in, in higher budgets. This is an area, again, where there was a lot of talk by people who are now at senior levels in the administration prior to uh, Biden taking office of cutting the defense budget uh, and an overdue recognition that actually, you know, Trump was was not the isolationist many thought. And it turns out he really liked defense spending. And, you know, that was all very nice. And here we are. So um, this this all calls for some really hard, hard choices um, that the administration simply is not going to make. Yeah. I promised Matt that we would do a lightning round on best and worst movies <laughs> that we saw this year. That's awkward segue, but can we... Can I we... thought that was smooth as silk, man. <laughs> All right, Matt, starting with you. Best and worst movies you saw this year. All right, best. Top three in no particular order. Tar with Kate Blanchett. Loved it. Okay. Uh, yes, T-A-R. Go watch it. Um, Prey. Another short. The Predator prequel. Oh yeah, so yeah. awesome! I forgot so about awesome. that. So and and of course, have to mention everything, everywhere, all at once, which yeah. um, I just recently watched again. And I just want to say those guys have taken so much acid. Um, the other the worst movie, The Northman. Uh, I didn't I don't see know if it. you guys were aware of this movie. <laughs> okay, and I and it's painful for me to see this because Bjork is in this movie. All right, and I love Bjork, man. That I, I more than love Bjork. I mean, any movie that any movie that Bjork is in stars Bjork. But that movie, I don't know. It's, it's just didn't. I mean, I thought it was. I thought it was bad. Uh, Steven? except for Bjork's parts, which were amazing, because once again, Bjork's amazing. Bjork, yeah. Um, Bjork. All right, I just have. I don't see. I don't see anything. So I probably saw like five movies. So all I, I I've got a top and a, and a bottom, and that's it. I'm and, glad I'm not uh, alone. My God, so much pressure. Okay. <laughs> so, After Sun uh, is my my top pick for the year. Uh, first time film for the director, incredibly well done. Uh, I can't really do it justice, but uh, check out After Sun. Azor is my least favorite. I think it probably came out two years ago, but toward the end of the year. Anyway, mm. I saw it this year. It's supposed to be like a slow burn. Uh, with a, like a Swiss banker going to Argentina and uncovering oh. stuff. And, I, you know, um, the Sounds actual massive. slow burn, the, 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 the slow burn is you sitting there and feeling the life drain <laughs> from your burn. body <laughs> over, over two hours. Yeah. There's nothing that was in that film that couldn't have been done in 15 to 20 minutes. Nice. Kate? <laughs> Oh my god. Okay. So I'm gonna I feel like my best and worst are actually the same movie. Um, and this nice. is gonna show you how and I watched it on a plane. So this is gonna show you how many yeah. movies I actually watch. Um, but the new Top Gun, best and worst. Wow. Oh, okay. Bold. I know controversial take, Bold. right? <laughs> um, but one, Miles Teller is just like excellent in mm. most things that he's in, and he plays Goose's son just so great. And there were so many emotional Goose moments. You gotta yes. love it. There was right? a lot of fan service. <laughs> There's a lot of fan service. They like didn't fuck it up and make it a horrible yeah. sequel. So like, kudos to them. Penny Benjamin, <laughs> come on, man. 
Oh, but also, okay, so, like, all I could see for their, like, mission, sorry, I'm gonna be a spoiler here for people who have not seen it, but their mission was literally this, like, DOD contingency plan if Iran got a nuke, right, and they have to go in and they not only, like, bomb Fordo once to break it open because it's underground. Then they use this like super weapon that was developed in the Obama administration that can like pound multiple times underground so it gets the entire facility. And of course they're successful in this mission. And it's like, it's like defense contractors dream this yeah. sequence. And because of course everyone watching is like, oh, look at all the explosions. And then yeah. they like steal this, like what is clearly an IRI jet to like yeah. flee Iran yeah. and, and the I, only Air Force that still flies F 14s. I mean, that yeah. was that I was, was like not hard. my partner being like, This is about Iran. I know what <laughs> this is why we're this is why we're losing. You think right, I want to come back to that about uh, have renegotiating a follow up the... comment? Oh. But Van, I want to hear yours. Oh, I agree with that. Yeah, okay, <laughs> fair enough. And uh. Best is the tie between uh, Moxie and Vengeance. So Moxie was on Netflix. I think it's an Amy Poehler movie. Uh, it's this girl in high school who discovers like female punk music. Her normie mom turns out to be previously like a radical feminist. And it's kind of it's, it's a coming of age comedy. But uh, it introduces you to like feminist standpoints and stuff in a way that's like funny and digestible. And it, it was good. Um, and then Vengeance is like a pretty new one. And it's by BJ Novak, the guy from The Office. And yeah. it's so good. It's got, yeah, like it's got a good story. It's funny. Um, it's got some surprises in it. And it's got a lot of Texas culture in it, which like I have this weird love hate thing for Texas. Um, and so seeing that and feeling it was like had a kind mm. of nostalgia vibe to it. The worst glass onion, I'm afraid to say. Um, I'm a huge Knives Out fan, and I had huge expectations for this, yeah. and I, I just didn't feel like it lived up to it. Good choices all around. All right, last, last quick comment on, on Top Gun. Kate, have you heard the, the, the theory that basically that Maverick died in that plane crash in the beginning, and the rest of the movie is him just redeeming himself in limbo? <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. How? Uh, if the that's limbo... Death. Wow. Yeah, yeah. No, he that is him just like you know, you know, redeeming himself for all his past, you know, with Penny Benjamin, with Goose's kid, doing the mission, teaching the pilots. Right. And then at the very end he ascends to man cave heaven, right? Because I was gonna say, right. yes, his right. like own hanger that he's exactly. like decorated. Right. <laughs> Matt, I think what you're saying is what you're saying is you want your own podcast. <laughs> I pitched him on that at one point yeah, when he was still working for Bernie. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're gonna have to, we're gonna have to do this, Van. I think I think this this is clearly a sign. We'll get together again. This is actually a good squad. Cool. Great to see you all. All right. Great. Thanks, yeah. guys. This was really fun. Bye. Bye. See ya.